Now, I want to have source of arrogance is his wealth. And let me suggest to you that this archetypal model, which the Quran talks about, of this arrogant, self-centered, etc., etc., person is a human being who thrives or whose arrogance is fed by money. You will rarely find, if money is like the fuel that ignites a personality like this, you will rarely find such a human being, if, if they don't have money, they're like a starved evil potential. In fact, that you might meet the person and think that they're quite decent. Because it seems that money is a catalyst that fires them into action or into realizing their evil potential. The more money they have, the more egregious they are. This, this is a personality that is wedded, this opportunist, uh, uh, um, low-life, traitor-like, um, uh, arrogant, self-centered, self-entitled personality is often quite money-dependent for its existence. And you find the second verse immediately targets his money. What use will his money be for him? Now, kasab is a little bit more elusive. Because ma'kasab is what he has earned. But it is broader than this. It is what he has earned in a more general sense, not just, in, not just limited to money, but what he has earned from being what he is. So, for example, if I come and tell you, ma kasabt min al what have you gotten from your errands? Or I say, ما كسبت من قلة الأدب. What have you earned? Or what have you gotten from being impolite? So you notice here, money is identified because it is the exact fuel. But the generalities then are swept under the expression ما كسبت. What this person has, be, has, has really earned. So neither his money nor all the things that feed he feeds upon nowadays. And Makasab would cover things such as home, such as a status, such as a position in society, such as uh, whatever it is. Even it would cover his milk and honey. What use will, they will do him nothing. Interestingly, is that Abu Lahab is reported in several places to would say, if what my nephew says is true, and this is this is uh, I mean if this report is true and I don't know, but uh, he would say if my nephew says it's true, of course he's saying it being sarcastic. That's no problem because I'll just pay off God on the final day. 
افتدي نفسي بمالي يا باي ماي ابزولفمنت فروم الله and so basically i mean if this report is true that then the quran is well comes and says your money means nothing i mean it's sort of interesting to see this type of discourse between the quran and a human being get down to even the the, the nuts and bolts and if one just looks at it as a human being saying something and god responding god appears petty when azulah Consequently, one must then search for the moral behind the response, for the divine to respond to a human being. It must be that the divine is communicating with other human beings much more, in a much broader sense than simply responding to this nobody who's saying stupid things. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Furthermore, Makasab covers also Abu Lahab's children. That his children will not do, do him any good. Because Kasbil insan in Arabic would also include the children. And it's an interesting point because of uh, Abu Lahab's son. In, uh, he was very much a projection of his father. I mean, very much a, 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 representation, a model of his father. Arrogant, haughty, uh, self-centered, entitled, to the extent that, I'll just give you one example of the types of things that Abu Lahab's son used to do, is that when, when Najm Hawa was revealed to the Prophet, Abu Lahab's son went to the Prophet, says, Kafart, and he spat in the Prophet's face. I do not, be, here, here he's making fun of the Quran. When he says, I do not believe kafarat bin najm iza hawa dana fatadalla. The sarcasm and the arrogance in the way he speaks. And when you read this, you immediately know what type of personality you're dealing with. You're, you're nearly dealing with a replica of the father. Arrogant and haughty and, and, and self-content and so on. And then he spits in the, in the prophet's face and walks off. It, it completely, the personality then it, it comes out to you. And several theologians as well as commentators of the Quran said that it's, it's quite interesting. Omar Kasab is, is broad enough to even cover his son. Sort of a, a, a stab at his son, if you will. Anyway, for what it, what it's what it's worth. Okay. He will be consumed by a flaming fire. Now Zatalab linguistically means a fire that not a flame. Lahab, nowadays in Arabic, Lahab means flame. Back then, Lahab meant a, a, a strong, all-consuming fire. Note here, this brings into, into question, into, into, uh, I mean, into issue, the whole debate about God's judgment before a person dies. 
Because here God is saying he, he will. Not he might be consumed by a fire. Not if he doesn't stop, he will be consumed by a fire. But he will be consumed by a fire. So it brings back the whole issue into others. Argued, no, God is telling us, informing us that he's going to die a Catholic, that he's not going to convert, that this is a sort of proof that God, uh, miraculous knowledge in, in knowing that this person will die as a Catholic. But as I explained, the other school of thought says, no, it doesn't matter whether he would have converted or not. This person has gone too far, done too much. Uh, then the other point of debate and discourse about this particular verse is Sayasla Naran that Which again is, is a point that you can, with the tafsir that we've done so far, that you can now predict or should predict, is that when it talks about consuming fire, is it talking about the nature of Abu Lahab being such that he will exist in a perpetual state of consuming fire? Or is it talking about punishment just about simply punishment in the hereafter? You see, you know that there is a human being, a type of person that could be consumed by a figurative fire on this earth in existence. This is very much like a hasad, is a hasad. This burning personality, that person that is constantly in a state of agony and, 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 and restlessness and anxiety and lack of peace and lack of tranquility because of the corruptness and the decrepitness of their soul makes peace or tranquility or the lack of anxiety an impossible situation to be in. Think about it. This human being who is, thinks that they're entitled and arrogant and rude, invariably you will also find them constantly anxious, constantly restless, constantly in a state of absolute absence of tranquility. This is as if they survive on hot coal. They live in a state of, of, of simmering all the time. Okay. Abu Lahab's wife, Um Jamil, was Abu Sufyan's wife's sister. In other words, Abu Sufyan's wife is her sister. Now, this is a very interesting point. And when I talk about archetypes and representation, it's a very interesting point. Abu Sufyan's wife is who? Hind. Now, note who Hind is. An exceptionally foul human being. I mean, this is the woman who had the uncle's, uh, uh, uncle, the prophet's uncle, stomach open and she bit into his liver. This is her. This is the woman when Abu Sufyan converted to Islam, she called him, you bladder of men. It, this was a way of, it's a name calling, that you call someone a bladder in old Arabic. That was like a really bad name calling. So she went to her husband, he said, you, you piece of bladder. Bladder of men. Because the bladder retains all the disgusting stuff that's hiding. 
So it's like saying you foul person. Foul. Hint, even when she, even after she converts to Islam, really, and here's a, a very interesting juxtaposition. When Hind converts to Islam, Hind does not suddenly become a model of piety. In fact, and here again for our Sunni friends who will get upset that someone is saying something unkind about Muawiyah, she raises Muawiyah. And Muawiyah is the one who causes the first civil war in Islam by rebelling against Ali. The juxtaposition is remarkable. Here is someone who actually was allowed to convert. While Abu Lahab's wife was condemned. Remember I told you that often these people, if they convert or not, the fact they're Muslim or not, they'll cause more damage as Muslim than if they're not Muslim. Now here you have Hind, for whatever reason she was not condemned on, on this earth, or maybe she was, we don't know. We really don't know. I mean, can we really say that just because the Prophet accepted Hind's conversion that she's saved in the hereafter? Maybe, maybe not, it's God's business. But here is a very interesting juxtaposition. This woman died, Abu Lahab's wife died as a non-Muslim. You know what? She did less damage to Islam than Abu Sufyan's wife, who caused, whose son caused the first, the first civil war in Islam and the rebellion against the Prophet's cousin and, and first convert. I, a very interesting, interesting juxtaposition of of, of fates and destinies. Yes, sir. It's also the, the idea of you know, after what she converts, it's just this, this regular soul that's still confused. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, but you see, it is not to be taken for granted. If the inner soul is, is, is a gift by God or, not, or, 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 or a curse by God and there's nothing you can do about it, this is predestination. In fact, the whole idea of predestination founds itself upon this. It says that God gives you a bad soul or a good soul and then condemns you or rewards you. But the, the school of that, that, that contradicted the idea of predestination said no. God gives you a neutral soul. And then through your own actions, you either turn it into extremely foul or moderately foul, whatever, or extremely good or moderately good. But what you could turn it into such evil, remember... Remember when we talked about the Mu'awizatan, the two surahs and Mu'awizats. We said that some human beings could become so evil that they become a devil, a human devil. This perhaps is the point of no return. You become so evil, your soul so corrupt, so rotten, that you are now a devil. You've transformed. Now, if someone can come and say, is it impossible for them to transform back? I say, as a human being, I am not empowered to say that. As a human being, God commands me to always say everyone has the potential to move in whichever direction. But in the back of my mind, I must always know when I commit evil, I better be very careful. Because this could be the last step and the step of no return. You might say one more time, like the child molester, okay? He's molested 11 children. Now, okay, this one last time. Well, friend, this one last time could be truly your one last time. The point of no return. And you never know when that point comes. That's, that's the main thing. Okay, so this juxtaposition between Abu Sufyan's wife 
Hind and his her sister, Um Jamil, who is Abu Lahab's wife. Now note here the, the, the confusion is reflected in the translations. Because Malak al-Hatab, Hatab as we know it in, 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 in contemporary Arabic usage means wood. But Hatab is one of these uh, uh, remarkable words of the Quran that carry several nuances. Okay, why? Several views, and I don't believe mutually exclusive. In other words, all of them could be very well, all of them at the same time could explain to us why is she described in this rather unusual fashion. Because if she's a carrier of wood, we know that uh, in fact, Um Jamil was an arrogant, self-centered, haughty. This is, you know, in today's world when you see a woman um, uh, uh, like from the higher classes and she always has her nose up in the air and etc, etc. The idea that this woman would carry wood that she carries wood in Mecca is, is impossible. I mean, this woman would snub her nose at anyone who has, the, the carriers of wood are the poorer people because you carry wood and you go sell it to be used as fuel for fire. So she herself on this earth would never, would never do something like that. One report tells us, well, you know, because the only time in, in an absolute set of sarcasm and arrogance that she would carry wood is when she would collect it to give it to children to throw in front of the prophet as he walks so he'll step on it. It is not that, I mean, the prophet has eyes and he can see this wood in front of him and he can avoid stepping on it. But it is an absolute act of dismissiveness and arrogance. You know, it's like, you piece of, you know, I'm having this sort of extremely haughty, self-content attitude of, here it is. A much more plausible report, but again, not exclusive of the other, is that she used to mock the prophet. And in fact, we have numerous reports that say this. That she used to mock the prophet, uh, uh, extensively mock the prophet because of his poverty. Remember, the prophet lives in her household for a period of time. And he wanted to be useful. So what he used to do was he would go collect wood. And wood is valuable in Mecca. Why? It's a desert. Right? I mean, it's not. It's people who burn wood to cook with. These are the rich people. If, if you're normal, you, you burn what? Dung, not coal. Dung. Cow or camel manure. Horse manure or, or camel manure. That's what most people cook with. But of course, to, food cooked with wood was considered to taste much better. And these are the higher classes, the ones who can, can cook with wood. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, in order to be useful, would go around collecting these, these pieces of wood and selling them. And she used to think this is the funniest thing in the world. And mock him incessantly about it. And when the Prophet ﷺ, this by the way, you, you, um, you probably would not know. The Prophet was engaged to Abu Lahab's daughter. 
over the vehement opposition of Um Jamil. And it seems that Abu Lahab agreed. Abu Lahab saw no real alternative because she's a cousin. And under the pressure of Ibn al-Abbas, the other uncle, it, it is extremely offensive. How could you have someone not to marry their cousin? That's one. The, the other element also is that Abu Lahab, it seems, thought... That's stupid of me because now I remember. He used to argue with Um Jamil that, okay, fine, but this is one way to control him. I mean, the guy won't shut up about this, this new religion of his. And if he's married to our daughter, we, we've got more authority and more control over him than if he's not married to anyone. But now, I should tell you that the reports disagree whether the Prophet was married to her or engaged to her. But it seems that the reports that he was married to her are, are, are highly doubtful. Highly doubtful. There is no evidence that the Prophet married after Khadija anyone in Mecca, but was engaged. And it seems that this was his, some reports say this was his second engagement. Some reports say this was his first engagement. But it's highly doubtful that, that he, he was married and then that they divorced her from him. But it more, much more likely that he was engaged to her and that Um Jamil ran to Abu Lahab at the point in which it became apparent that Muslims are starting to migrate and said, this has gone far enough. You're first telling me we can have control over him, etc., etc., and have influence over him. Now he's going to convert. This is before the decision was made to kill him, by the way. Because, I mean, the decision was made to kill the Prophet before he migrated. Now he's going to take the girl and go and live with her in Medina. What type of influence and what type of control are we going to have now? He's going to take her and travel to Medina where, where you know, we can't even really see her that much. And and then the, the, the engagement is broken. And then after that, the decision is made to kill him. I love reading this material because when you read it, what strikes you is that they were really humans. I mean, they were really human beings. When, when after the boycott imposed upon the Prophet in Medina, the two-year, the Prophet truly thinks of a way that, that this, that life could be made easier for his followers. And it seems that his nephew, Abu Lahab's daughter, liked it. She didn't dare convert because her mother would have killed her. <laughs> I mean, from the, 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 what we know of her mother. Now, the reports say, though, is that she liked the Prophet and had told friends that she would convert if it wouldn't be for the fact that she's scared of her mother and father. And when the Prophet showed an indication that he's interested in her, and she saw that her father was in favor, she immediately said yes. Reports say that she also used to, to see him when she would go out to, to get water. Not like neat, but she would give him the eye and things like that. I mean, very fascinating stuff. And, and then Um Jamil, her hears that her daughter said yes. She, she goes and confronts her and said, is it true that you told your father yes? And she says, no, I didn't. And her father, Abu Lahab, comes and says, she did, she did. You, yesterday, I was talking to her, she said yes. And she said, no, I didn't. Obviously, she got scared and her mother confronted her. And then she says, I did it, and she walks out, out of the room. And she leaves Abu Lahab with Um Jamil. Um Jamil is very much like him. She has a very sharp tongue. 
And she calls her, her husband, you know, the you bladder and stuff like that. But she doesn't call him bladder. She uses other things. She says, may, may, may your mother lose you for suggesting this. And then Abu Lahab is, is, is going off with Um Jamil about this. And he says, you know, listen, woman, we, we, this is better. I'm coming under a lot of pressure. People say I betrayed the Hashem clan. I've allowed the clan to be boycotted. You know, my, my, my position is becoming very precarious. It's a big embarrassment. The, the, the girl likes him anyway. So why don't we just do this and we can have some control. And then finally, and Hind, by the way, hears about this. This is the, now, the, the Hind also had one of these people who meddled in everything. And she comes in, in, the, in the report we have after midnight, after they're asleep, banging in the door. And when she sees Um Jamil, she says, where is this spineless husband, spineless woman husband of yours? And he comes out, she jumps at him, grabs his, his beard and brings it to her face, sort of like nose to nose. It says, you spineless piece of this and this, is it true that you have engaged your daughter to Muhammad, the, the imposter, etc.? And he, he's, he's a fat man. So and, and so she's literally like over his it was a big belly, she's literally over his 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 belly. So the reports say that he bumps her off with his belly. <laughs> I mean you it's full of it, bumps her off and says, Let go, you women, etc. And she grabs at his at, at his turban, ripping, taking it off his head, and and, and then her, her sister calms her. Then the next scene we hear from these historical reports is the point where then now they know that it's a matter of time before the Prophet migrates. And they, then Um Jamil goes off and says, okay, so now what? You, you kept telling me influence, influence, now what? Now he's going to take the girl and travel. My sister was right all along. And then he goes to the, to the girl and he tells her, we're going to break your engagement off. She starts shedding tears. So he comes out and he, told, he tells Um Jamil, your daughter. Just all, That's all he says, your daughter. That's in Arabic of that time, an external meaning like, go deal with your daughter. So Um Jamil storms into the room, says, are you, is it true that you are lamenting the loss of Muhammad, the son of the imposter, you know, Muhammad the imposter? And the girl answers what? No, no, my mother, and smiles. <laughs> and of course, as you would predict, she's married a week later to someone else. And then we, we hear nothing about her in history after that. She's gone. But it's, I mean, then, then you get a sense of real life. Not the way that, unfortunately, the, 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 the circumstances, the context of the problem are often cast in such unreal terms. But if you read history, you find that, in fact, it was very real terms, very actual events with very real people. The problem when you deal with early history like this, okay, if a report is reported by a historian and then poetry, pre-Islamic poetry, or we have like a mention of the poetry in, in, in Hind's poetry, okay, then we have a sense that probably it happened because not only do you have the historical say sources say it happened, but you have anti-Islamic poetry talking about it as well. We really, there's no way of knowing. You know, I could tell you, for example, that this report about uh, Um Jamil and, and, and Abu Lahab, etc., etc., and so on, 
was transmitted by, you know, as many as 15 different converts, late converts to Islam, who were saying, you know, the story of the, the Hashim, because most of these reports are, are in the context of people talking about the history of the Hashim clan. That's what they're really documenting. Not so much the story of the Prophet, but so much the story of the clan from which the Prophet came, the history of the clan from which the Prophet came. And so, you know, they, they talk about, okay, this person was married to this person, was engaged to this, this person divorced from this, this person did this, etc., etc., etc. Nonetheless, we are never assured that there hasn't been an element of exaggeration, especially when there are conflicting facts. For example, the story about her grabbing his beard is Abu Lahab goes to Abu Sufyan and complains, and complains in public. I mean, he, he, he stands in the Majma Quraysh and says, everyone be informed that the wife of this man has insulted me and degraded me, etc., etc. I mean, Abu Lahab was quite understandably upset about this. The position of Um Jamil and like her, his, her daughter, etc., etc. This is Abu Lahab defending himself against attacks of his wife. Because very much like poor Abu Sufyan, Hind used to attack her husband. It seems that these two women, something about their upbringing, <laughs> because both of them didn't respect their husbands very much. I mean, it's, it's, is it a coincidence that both girls, both women seem to have very similar personalities? So that's how the, the, the reports come. But nonetheless, I mean, for example, when it says that he was married to her, why do we have that report? We don't have reports that say he wasn't engaged. We have reports that, that disagree about when, exactly when it happened. But, um, so anyway, I mean, you can't be assured. Although my sense is, I will, if I write it as a history, I put in a cautionary note at the beginning and say, you know, I tell the reader, know that not everything can be relied on as factual, but everything can be relied on as, as reflections of cultural understandings and social understandings of the time. Because obviously, even if they're inventions, they're being invented for a reason. In other words, they fit, they're believable by the standards of the age. So whether in fact it happened or not, obviously people would have thought it's quite unremarkable for it to have happened because they accepted it. So that's one. Two is that I would put in what seems plausible to me in the main text and in footnotes tell people about divergent alternative possibilities of fact and tell people you should know that there are these other versions. I, I believe this version because it makes more sense to me, etc., etc. But here there are other versions and then it's up to you if you think that something else is more plausible. Over this, I mean, maybe, for example, there is an element of exaggeration about Abu Lahab's daughter telling him yes and then denying it the next day. Maybe her, her, her father asked her and she didn't answer. Maybe she did, you know, maybe she went to her, as far as I'm concerned, maybe she went to her father and suggested it in the first place. I'll never know. But based on that, I'll accept the story as the closest thing I have to the truth because I will never know. I wasn't there. And no one else, else will anyway. 
they they come from variety of uh, because you see Ibn Sham was really concerned about the history of the Prophet himself and not so much the ancillary histories of his contemporaries. It is these late Meccan converts after Hudaybi are the ones who are most interested. These were the, the so-called historians who were most interested in documenting life in Mecca before Islam or after Islam, before Islam, before Mecca became Muslim. And there is an element of, of unmistakable pride about the Meccan tradition in it. Because what I mean, Ibn Sham and Ibn Ishaq and these biographers of the Prophet, they really had the attitude that everything in Mecca, other than Prophet and the, those who believed, was not even worth documenting. I mean, Um Jamil and, and, and her interactions with her husband and her daughter, blah, blah, blah. To them, it was not worth the ink it's written on. So they never report anything about it. While it is these Meccan historians who, uh, in Al-Asr al-Amawi particularly, are very, uh, you know, why not, uh, no, uh, that's not fair, before Al-Asr al-Amawi, want to document something about how Mecca was in the old days. Not with praise, but sort of like, this is what happened. In a very monotone, Sometimes the reason, for example, these sources are not that read is that it's extremely boring. They, they report this material in the most monotone, tedious tonality you can ever imagine. The, you know, with no drama element at all, no dramatic element at all in the presentation of facts. So the second report that we have is that he would make poke fun of the prophet because he would collect wood. And this is, here the Quran turns sort of the, turns the degradation upon her by saying she will be made to carry <coughs> hatab, wood, as, as, as a form of um, uh, you get punished by the very instrument of your sin. This is a very fascinating discourse in Sufism, which we will talk about again later. Let's say someone's main sin is murder. And he goes to hellfire because he killed a lot of people. Then in the final day, his fire is going to be to experience the agony and horror of being murdered time and time again. These Sufi, particularly Sufi commentators in the Quran, extract this in a very fascinating way from the Quran. We'll talk about that again. Uh, or someone's main, um, main sin is fornication. That's why they're going to hell. Is to experience fornication, not in its delusional sense, as we see it as human beings, you know, you take a bunch of cells, right? We, through a delusion, see these cells forming a skin. We, through a delusion, see beauty in the skin. And we, through a delusion, find in, in, in the act of fornication, excitement, comfort, etc. But what if we see it for its real sense? Liquids, 
cells, fluids, in the most in the most ugly sense, mundane sense, and find that we are constantly being forced to experience that time and time. Or let's say someone's main sin is treason or betrayal. To live the agony and the horrors of the betrayed time and time vividly. And that becomes your hellfire. So here, part of this discourse is that she, her main, if, if her main sin is her, or part of her main sins is the fact that she would degrade the Prophet because he carried humbly, carried collected wood. If she is going to experience these feelings of utmost degradation and humiliation that the victim of degradation feels in the very same act that she used to make fun of. So if we put it differently, if your main sin is to make fun of the handicap of a person, someone is a paraplegic. Then on the final day you come and you experience the same agonies of this person as they are made fun of. And the sin simply turns on its head. And one of the verses relied on in the, in the Sufi tradition is this. Is that she will be punished by her very sin. This, by the way, reflect upon this. Reflect extensively. Because then sin also becomes a far scarier sin. You see, it's one thing if your punishment is, is vengeance upon you, but it's another when the very instruments of your joy or your delusion become the very instruments of your torment. Because what overcomes you at this point is the constant remembering or constant reminder of how at one point you could have avoided it. One thing if you're punished by being, let's say, burned, okay, is that you are consumed in pain, but you're not necessarily reminded of the act of fornication itself. Think about that. If I, if I am being punished for fornicating by being burned, I have no occasion to remember how it felt when I was fornicating. I am much more concerned with how it feels now as I'm being burned, right? I might feel bad because I'm being burned, but I'm not remembering how, you know, how it used to feel. But what if my punishment is to relive my sin? Now I cannot forget. I'm not allowed to forget. And if I forgot on this earth and ignored it and pretended not to remember, my God, I will be forced to relive the details in all their ugliness, in their real sense now, time and time and time again. And the horror and every time I die, to re-experience it again. That is suffering beyond description. I would much rather have hellfire as a true burning. So I can just be consumed in the agony and the pain and not keep reliving my crime again and again and again. But we'll come back to this because of the fact that the Quran talks about it in rather fascinating ways in different times. Okay. The other 
aspect, third position, not exclusive of each other, is that he used al-kalam. What a fascinating expression. al-kalam. In Arabic, when we say tahtatib means to collect words. In Arabic, when we say fulan yahtatib ala fulan, means yughri bih. Fulan yahtatib ala fulan means yughri bih. In a nutshell, it's this. That she would go around yapping, talking, backbiting about people. Collecting talk like you collect wood. That's what يحتطب الكلام means. وفلان يحتطب على فلان means that you go around go about other human beings. In doing this, you ignite the fire of animosity between people. In Um Jamil's arrogance, an archetypal model for evil is a human being who lives not only in arrogance and haughtiness and, and, and it, it, a, a sense of entitlement and superiority that she shares with, with her archetypal husband, but she is a person that makes a, makes a way of life it's a way of life for her to go around yapping about other human beings. Her favorite topic of conversation is, did you hear such and such person did this? Did you? And the more animosity and discord and hostility she's able to create among people, the more satisfied she is. And we know people like that. We know people like that. This is a way of life. Remember again, archetypes of evil. Hamalat al-Hatab. All of these nuances can be captured by the same expression. In other words, I don't believe that they're mutually exclusive. I think probably she mocked the Prophet for collecting wood. And we have from many sources of the Prophet collected wood at different times in order to support himself. Probably she mocked him and arrogantly considered it beneath her. We have numerous reports that she was a backbiter par excellence. A, 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 a housewife, a rich housewife, who found nothing better to do than sit down and make everyone's life miserable by constant talk. In fact, it's not just the prophet that we have reports about. We have reports of her and her sister, by the way, Hind, making the lives of slave girls miserable the life of slave boys miserable the life of other wives miserable and when they found you know the, the the new thing that they can spend hours and hours talking about islam and muslims they would go around all the time oh did you hear what muslims did do you did you hear what's the latest they've done oh can you believe it they've done this etc etc we have numerous reports like that about um Jamil. numerous reports like that all of them probably happened. And all of them lead to the same archetypal, archetypal personality that is the embodiment of a rotted soul. Okay. A fascinating experience. Notice, if you read Fiji, what is the Jeet? Jeet. It's, it's this area here. See? Here. This is the jayt. Huh? 
the jayid is the is the beginning in the ayat of hijab uh, this is the jayid here Ijayid is the circular area leading to the jayid everyone follow this is your jayid around this area what's a habl? rope and masad is that fabulous expression because masad could be many different things could be iron a, a chain made of, of, of steel of iron could be simply a necklace masad is a necklace could be a rope made out of palm tree fibers tied together or could be a constraining rope. And here the meaning alters completely. In her jade is a constraining rope. It is as if she carries upon her neck a tie and a bomb. A mark that does not go away. Symbolically, by, by the rules of Arabic eloquence, if I come to you and I say, and you're not wearing a rope around you, then what the heck am I saying? A mark, a tie that tells me about you. You come to me and, and you tell me, please do business with me. I say, no. I say, why? I say, I see a mark that tells me about you around your neck. See now how, how the nuances of meaning become. Could literally be mean that she will be tied around her neck with a rope made of fire. Interesting, but why would torture be limited to that? I mean, there are many ways to torture a human being, and I can imagine some ways that are much more painful than to tie a rope of fire on my neck. For example, shove something into my intestines. If it is read within its figurative, symbolic, and keeping in mind the archetypal role of Um Jamil, then much can make sense to us beyond the, 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 the literal. She has become the carrier of her faults. The, the one who, sit, who is the collector of wood, Hamalat al-Hatab, becomes burdened, weighted down by this wood. And this weight, it's, it, figuratively, when you imagine it, you imagine it as if, as if it's a choke around their neck. Her sins, her punishment, which is reliving her sins vividly, reliving the consequences of her arrogance vividly, will become as if it is a noose around her neck that she cannot get rid of. It is as if the, the torment of reliving your sin is what? Is suffocation. The inability to escape that you feel suffocating under the weight of what you've done. And that's where the, the rope around the neck becomes. 
she will not be able to escape it. She will not be able to run away from it, but constantly re the reliving of her sins, choking her, weighing down upon her like wood would weigh down upon a person who, who, who carries it. Furthermore, her sins that she has committed, her archetypal, archetypal rotted personality, which has led to her being condemned on this earth, is like a noose around her neck, chaining her to her filth and to her sin. It is like God saying, her sin have become a noose around her neck, preventing her ever from becoming the negation of that art, from becoming a decent human being. She is so rotted. And the rot, it's as if I tell you, this is, she is so rotted. And the rotted has chained her to, to, to her filth so much that she will never be able to leave it. She's stuck to it. So here, Surat al-Masad. Again, remember how I started. The Quran in the 30th Juz, which if not all Meccan, then most of it is Meccan. Probably all Meccan. Is laying down the foundations, the principles, the basics for a life that is going to be led in the way of God. In the pursuit of a Sirat al-Mustaqim. This is what we began with. In the pursuit of constructing reality. Of understanding your God and understanding yourself. In the pursuit of protecting yourself from evil. And, and escaping the consequences of evil. This is in Mu'awwazatan. In understanding the fate of human beings and what happens to human beings comes and in a very powerful fashion sets an archetype for you. The archetype of, of a man and a woman. What the man and husband and wife, what the man and woman share is their arrogance. What they share and know, know. What they also share is their rudeness. No, when she is mocking a person because he's trying to make a living, she's also what? Rude. Is their arrogance, is their rudeness, their impoliteness, an inherent sense of superiority, an inherent sense of entitlement, an inherent sense of special, specialness, and a priority over other human beings. A feeling that I'm better. I'm better. An inherent sense of stubbornness and, and ignorance and arrogance about who they are. This is the archetype. The consequences and also people who have no sense of regard for even propriety. In Abu Lab's case, using his position as an uncle to betray and to stab. And in uh, um, uh, um Jamil's case, using both his her, her her dynamic as a wife and her dynamic as a mother to reproduce an inherently value less 
immoral process of inter interaction. In other words, despicable, sleazy human beings, put it in a nutshell. The consequence is they're condemned on this earth. God is not going to wait till the hereafter. They've been given a sufficient chance. And in fact, they're going to be told that to their face on this earth. And they are so decrepit, so lost, so arrogant that God knows they're not even, even if they wanted to just simply be smart, they would say, okay, we convert and sort of embarrass the Quranic discourse somewhat, perhaps. But the, Allah knows that they are so arrogant that it won't make a difference. Hind eventually converts when everyone else, after everyone else does, including her husband. I mean, it's very interesting because just a week earlier, I'm sorry, not even a week, 48 hours, she's calling him a bladder of men, and then two days later she goes and converts. And when the prophet tells her, don't you, date, don't you dare commit adultery, she says, Free women don't commit adultery. Arrogant, haughty, you know, entitled. Free women don't commit adultery. Not, I won't commit adultery because I'm a good way. No, it's my status that tells me that I don't commit adultery. You get a sense of the personality. A sense of who these human beings are. Human beings that, that live life eating the flesh of others. Eating the flesh, not cooking them for dinner, but living on talking about others and 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 status and position and um, this is how life is judged and how life is negotiated. Their their punishment to live the the reality of their rot and their foulness time and time again to to be burned by it in this life to suffer the consequences in this life and in the hereafter to be completely submerged in it. To no end until they taste the bitterness that they perpetuated in this life. And with that, as blunt as it begins, it bluntly ends. As if with these people, and this is another point, Jamaliyyah, as they call it. With these people, Allah is not going to introduce, Allah is not going to say words of eloquence, Allah is not going to have eloquent, startling, amazing ends, like in other surahs where you know the end is, oh, how beautiful. No, with these people, Allah is just simply blunt, straightforward, starts out with the condemnation, ends with the condemnation, and this is all I have to tell, to, tell to, you, to your types and the end of it. Boom, and that's it.